And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest mentor is Tom Wheeler, currently a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Tom is a businessman, an author of many books, and he was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, from 2013 to 2017. As an entrepreneur, he started or helped start multiple companies. He's the only person to be selected to both the Cable Television Hall of Fame and the Wireless Hall of Fame, a fact President Obama joked made him the Bo Jackson of telecom. Prior to being appointed chairman of the FCC, he was president and CEO of the National Cable Television Association, or NCTA. And following NCTA, Tom was CEO of several high-tech companies. He served for 12 years as president and CEO of the Cellular Telecommunications and Internet Association, or CTIA. Presidents Clinton and Bush each appointed him a trustee of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Tom is also a former chairman and president of the National Archives Foundation. So welcome, Tom. It's great to have you on the show. Dan, it's great to be with a good friend like you. Um, well, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. We met back in 1997. I was the CEO of AT&T Wireless. You were the CT, CEO of the CTIA, which, as I mentioned, was the industry, the kind of the wireless industry trade association. I remember at AT&T back then, the payphone business was a lot bigger than the cell phone business <laughs> and much, much more. My, how the world has changed. Has it ever? I mean, uh a couple of old guys like like us, we could you know we, we've known a lot about it. And we're gonna we're gonna get into some of that. So where, we were, where Stan, where would Superman go to change today? You got a point there. You know, I hadn't thought about you that. Know? No phone booth, and yeah. they were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. <laughs> but you know, when you, when you go to the cell phone business, you know, you and I were there you know, at that time, ninety seven. It was the the era of one G or analog which were big, heavy devices. And we were just beginning to usher in 2G, the second generation, or the first digital standard. And actually, I should say standards, plural, GSM, TDMA, CDMA. As you know, and that was really important because devices got smaller and less expensive. Battery life got better. Uh, text messaging was possible on that on that new platform. And that's really when wireless began to take off. It became really mainstream. Do you have any particular memories, events, accomplishments that that come to mind for you during that period of time? Because you were you were so much a part of wireless becoming what it is today. Well, I have two quick reactions to what you said, Dan. One was um in 1992, we celebrated the 10 millionth subscriber 
um, to cellular service. And that was a big deal because um, at the time of the AT&T breakup, when AT&T was trying to decide would they keep this cellular phone business or let it spin off, they hired McKinsey to do a study. And McKinsey mm-hmm. predicted that by the turn of the century, there would be 1 million cellular subscribers. And so we were all excited about the fact that here we were eight years ahead of the turn of the century um, and 10 times what the forecast had been. But it really took off after that because of things like what you did, like digital one rate that you introduced when you were leading AT&T wireless. And, and the fact that suddenly wireless phones could be competitive with landline phones um, with a, a, a single rate and not a lot of the we won't go into all what the difficulties were, but the various islands that had to connect across the country and the various extra fees that got charged and all this sort of thing. Um, and um, and that was a huge breakthrough that really was the foundation of what we know today as the modern wireless industry. Well, you're very kind to say so. So, Tom, you were the CEO of the Cable Industry Trade Association, the Wireless Industry Trade Association chairman of the FCC, a successful entrepreneur. So you had a lot of background in the tech space that went into writing your book, Tech Lash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age? You're a big student of history. You know, you've written books about Lincoln, about the Gutenberg printing press. This is also learning from history where you compare the big internet platform companies of today, Alphabet, Google, Meta, Facebook, um, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, to those kind of industrial giants uh, of the Gilded Age, uh, Vanderbilt's Railroads, Carnegie Steel, you know, Morgan Banking, Ro- uh, Rockefeller's Oil. Why the comparisons to the Gilded Age? You know, Dan, yes, I am a frustrated historian. Um, And, um, you know, when you look at the original Gilded Age, which ran from roughly the 1870s until the early 20th century, um, and and you, you look at what was going on then, we had new technology, that was driving change, introducing new economic model, creating new products at low prices, accelerating the pace of life, um, destroying small businesses, uh, creating monopolies, um, driving incredible wealth disparity, causing consumer harms, and even fake news. Any of that sound familiar, Dan? <laughs> and so what fascinated me was to, and what I tried to do in TechLash, was to look at the kinds of experiences that drove the original Gilded Age and to say, what is it? 
that informs the digital Gilded Age and what should we do about it? We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, former FCC chair and author Tom Wheeler. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with author of Tech Lash, Tom Wheeler. Remember, you can also listen to the show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or on your favorite podcast platform on any device at any time. Tom, you also say in your book that today's platform companies are also more profitable even than those monopolies way back when. How can these companies of today be so profitable? So the economics of the original Gilded Age were the scope and scale economics that drove industrialization. Um, and and essentially, scope and scale economics, you know, run great until you reach a certain scale. And then they tend to level off as um, inefficiencies come in based on size, based on innovation, based on management challenges, et cetera. In the digital gilded age, the you have scope and scale economies, but you also have exponential growth driven by um, the uh, network effects, um, what, what economists call the network effects. And, and basically the network effects are the more people who are on a service, the more people who want to be on that service, and the more valuable that service becomes. And what is that service delivering? It's delivering the same thing again and again and again and again. You know, when Ford builds a truck, they have to buy new steel and glass and tires for every truck. When Facebook connects a new user, they use the same files that they used for the previous person. And so you have a reality where the um, the marginal costs of operating a digital platform tend to approach zero. And that, as I say in the book, is the world's greatest business model. This is Dan Hesse. You are listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are with TechLash author Tom Wheeler. So, Tom, these companies often, though, provide a free service. Isn't that a public good? What could possibly be wrong with that? Um, the question is, there's, you know, there's nothing in life that's free. We still we start there. Um, but, you know, I, I get a kick out of this. Oh, but it's free. You know, one of the things that Rockefeller did back in the original Gilded Age was to massively decrease the cost of kerosene. You know, we think about Rockefeller was gasoline. No, it was kerosene. I mean, he was literally saving the whales uh, because he replaced whale oil uh, with kerosene to light America's homes and cook America's uh, food. And and uh, he reduced the price uh, like 75% from what it was uh, a few years previously. 
Um, but that didn't mean that the monopoly that he established where he had 90% control of the market and was squeezing out other competitors was good. And um, and so, so the reality is, of course, these services um, are free. Um, and because they are free, then you can drive the uh, the network effects that I was talking about previously, which only ensconce them more. But they allow us, if you will, to sign away our data, our you know our our privacy. Is there anything wrong with how that's accomplished? Oh, gee, Dan. I mean, you 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 pushed one right over the center of the plate. They. Um, we're living in a world where um, my private information has become a corporate asset, basically without my permission. And, and that decision was made by the platform executives again, without consulting me. Now, they hide behind the fact that they say, oh, well, you consented to this when you looked at those seven pages of fine leak, fine print legalese that you have to click accept before they'll provide you service. That's kind of a situation where I'm holding your service hostage until you pay the ransom. Um, and, um, and, and so... But what has happened is we've gone through a process where it started out, you know, I mean, if I'm if I'm searching on Google for something having to do with the Civil War and you know that, OK, this guy has an interest in the Civil War, that's one thing. But then when it follows me to every other website that I go to and when it looks at my email as Gmail did. And when it follows me even off of the internet and follows me around using my cell phone, and 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 I haven't consented other than in this legalese form that I had to agree to, to in order to get the service in the first place, there's something wrong with that model. And um and and it becomes even worse. I I I talk about the digital chain reaction where what happens is that when when your private information and my private information get turned into a corporate asset and then hoarding that asset allows the platform to control the market and keep competitors out. And then once you control the market, you control what goes across, goes into that market. And so you've got a situation where, where private information of individuals becomes the entry drug to market concentration and to information management that ends up affecting truth and trust. And it, it, is, a, it is a digital chain reaction um, that just keeps reinforcing itself. But for these products to become really powerful and helpful, I mean, don't they have to become extremely personal? So everything from your personal assistant, to especially when you get into the metaverse, you know, it has to know a lot about you, these services to be as effective as they can be. So is your take, they don't need to collect all their 
all they're getting from us it sounds that way well i think that there's a there's a concept that i promote in the book that i i i talk about in the book uh not my concept um but it's called privacy by design and what we need to be thinking about is not gee how much of dan hesse's information can i possibly catch to how much of dan hesse's information do i need to provide this service and um we're not there in any way shape or form these days we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor tom wheeler discussing lessons from history you can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like apple or spotify this is dan hesse and this is the mentors radio and now Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with former FCC Chair Tom Wheeler about our loss of privacy. So, Tom, the metaverse, I think you've uh, you've also said, is going to make this issue even kind of more problematic or, or potentially more serious. Why? Well, you know... When you, the minute you put on the goggles that take you to the metaverse, or soon to be the glasses that take you to the metaverse, they start reading your eye movement, obviously, because they have to do that to, pr to provide the service. But one of the fascinating things is that the ability to add to all the information that has already been collected about you online, to add all your biometric data, your eye movement, your perspiration rate, your heart rate, your body movement, gives more personal information that allows you to be targeted even more. And, um, and the, the question becomes, are we going to establish rules about that or procedural standards or are we just going to let it develop like it developed on the internet you know so so mark zuckerberg one day announced um that privacy was no longer a social norm quote unquote and he was changing the privacy practices of facebook unilaterally Gee, I didn't get the message that my privacy wasn't a social norm. And yet, everything changed in that regard. What we need to be doing is to be saying, okay, there are these new changes coming. How do we anticipate them? And, and Mark Zuckerberg, for, for whom I have great respect, um, you know, his answer is, oh, we've got plenty of time. This is going to take a while to develop. Well, baloney. That's what we heard before, and it, it and and shame on us if we don't act proactively to assert our rights, but to have them then delivered or determined uh, unilaterally um, by whoever is de delivering the product and stands to benefit from their decisions. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with technology platform expert Tom Wheeler. So I know, Tom, you're an advocate of self-regulation. That's really what these industry groups you know, that you've led are really about, is to try to come together and 
behave in a responsible way collectively to avoid regulation. Regulation often is just the penalty for kind of an industry's bad behavior. When I was the outgoing chair of the CTIA, I gave the, you know, the, the keynote address at the 2012 CTIA big convention. And um, our credibility and tr the trust in the, the wireless industry was, was coming down. And so I gave a talk about privacy and trust, that the smartphone was the most personal device in the history of humanity. Uh, it had so much information about us and that our opportunity to gain the public's trust was to be really responsible around privacy. So I announced that Sprint going forward was no longer going to have customers opt out to having their personal data used for advertising and things like that. But from now on, we would explain in plain English what the options were for customers and they would need to opt in or we, we would not use any of their information for these kinds of things. And also we'd get a third party to verify that we were doing it. And you know, it, it paid off for us. Obviously we did lots of things, but in 2012, we were recognized by the Reputation Institute as the most improved company in the world of any kind of the world's 1,500 largest companies in overall corporate reputation. But it has, of course, there's customer service and financial performance, a lot that goes into it, but we believe it's important to brand. Um, the industry didn't follow me. The wireless industry didn't. And you talk about the internet platforms not doing it either. Is there just too much money? Uh, why, you know, why can't they rally around because a lot of times the regulatory hammer at the end of the day is going to be potentially worse than had they acted proactively. You did the responsible thing and you should have been commended and recognized for that. You know, there's an interesting thing. When I was chairman of the FCC, we put in place privacy rules for networks such as the wireless networks. And um, 57 days after the new administration came in and the Republicans took over in Congress, the Congress passed a law and President Trump signed repealing that privacy protection. And what did that privacy protection say? It said that the rights that you had to protect your privacy on your landline telephone, which were essentially what you did at Sprint to say opt-in, were the same when you used your the internet. Uh, you know, I remember being hauled up to Congress to, to testify in the Senate because the chairman of the committee didn't like that I was proposing this. And I pulled out my phone, <clears throat> my wireless phone, and I held it up and I said, you know, Senator, if I use this device to haul Air France, my service provider can't sell that information to a tour operator in Paris. But if I use the same device on the same network, to go to Air France's website, they can. That's not right. And consumers are confused and we ought to have the same set of rules on each side. <clears throat> the commission put those rules in place. And like I said, the Congress passed a law 
saying that those outlawing those rules uh, after the change in administration. Um, there is a basic level of responsibility here, which has to be more than let's gobble up as much as we can. You did that at Sprint. You said, let's empower the customer. We ought to be doing more of that. By the way, that Air France example that you that you gave is is a really good illustration. As long as we're on all these sunny subjects about tech, um, uh, there's an even larger problem. And that is you, you point out in your book, Tom, that there's more money to be made in amplifying false information than giving people accurate and true information. Will you elaborate on that? Well, you know, the term is called engage or enrage to engage and um and, and let's go back you know as i said in tech lash i draw the analogy to the uh, the original gilded age let's go back to the um press barons like uh william randolph hearst and joseph pulitzer in the original gilded age who would make up facts and stories and publish them in order to attract readers. And it's the same kind of model that has been embraced by social media platforms, which is if I can enrage the, uh, the user, he or she will stay on longer. And there are two advantages to them staying on longer. One is I get to sell more ads to them. And the second is I get to collect more information from them, both of which end up enriching me. And um, and again, we go back to um, to the original Gilded Age. How did that period of the of the Hearsts and the Pulitzers, a period it's been described as yellow journalism. How did yellow journalism come to an end? Well, it came to an end in 1922. As a result of 1922, the um, the publishers, the editors of the newspapers came together and created the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And the following year, they came out with a code of conduct. And the first item in that code of conduct was tell the truth. Now, what I've been proposing is that we need to have codes of conduct for privacy, for competitive activities, and for um, for truth and trust that are enforceable, not just pretty documents on PowerPoint presentations, but are enforceable, and that we can rebalance the digital economy between private interests and public interests still while stimulating innovation through these kinds of agile codes of conduct. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Tom Wheeler, discussing the impact of technology on our lives. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with author Tom Wheeler about how technology is changing 
what information we see. I know, Tom, that you know you prefer, as as we mentioned earlier, either self-regulation or or a light touch. And I think it might be possible, not only the code of conduct which you've described, but you know, one of the reasons we have the issues we do is it might be more efficient that algorithms rather than human curators be what get the information in front of us. Do you think the same technology, uh, i.e. Like, like algorithms, can be used to solve the problem that it's created? Well, two answers. N- number one, let me go back and just correct one thing you said, Dan. Self-regulation only goes so far mm-hmm. for two reasons. And you will recall that I led the effort that resulted in the wireless industry's code of conduct. And what I learned in that exercise was that there are two weaknesses. One is the code is only as good as the weakest link in the companies that are developing it. And second is that voluntary codes are per se not enforceable. And um, and what I favor is a multi-stakeholder process that develops an enforceable code that you have a government agency saying, let's get this multi-stakeholder group together, which is industry, government, civil society, and give and give them an amount of time to come up with an answer and that the agency comes in in essence with the plaintiff's brief and says, here's the problem, here's what needs to be solved. And then that the agency reviews what the multi-stakeholder group uh, came up with and edits, approves. And then once it is in place, it becomes an enforceable code of conduct. And, um, and, that's what you need in the process. So you need to involve all the parties, but ultimately you need to have a situation where there is enforceability. So how do you regulate an industry, for example, if you have enforcement that's so complex? I mean, I don't think anybody would disagree that the federal government's kind of broken these days. And we're talking about extraordinary complexity and the issues that you and I are describing. How can that happen well in this environment? You know, I the one of the great things that everybody always hides behind is, oh, this is terribly complex. You know, no no mere mortal can understand this. We're hearing this now again with artificial intelligence. But I heard it all the time um, when I was at the FCC. Oh, the internet. Oh, this is so complex that if it, it's on, it's really approaching magic. And and if you touch it, you'll break the magic. Well, I think we have all learned the consequences of that, and we have all learned that things are really not that complex. You know, the federal government split the atom. We 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 brought men to and from the moon safely. You know, there I I bet that there aren't half a dozen people in Congress who can explain jet propulsion or Bernoulli's principle that keeps an airplane in the air. Yet we regulate the manufacture of airliners and we make we regulate their operation. This is this is just an old saw that is getting pretty tired that 
that everybody hides behind because um, it is possible to understand what's going on uh, and to assemble informed individuals to make recommendations and decisions. You also argue that regulations, standards, and the like are, are actually in the best interests of the platform companies. Why do you say that? Absolutely. I mean, they, they, you know, the thing that companies hate the worst, you know, when I was representing companies and when I was regulating companies, the thing they hate the worst is uncertainty. Tell me what the rules are and I can manage around that. So, Tom, how do you define success? Oh, my goodness. We've moved from technology to philosophy. We have. <laughs> That's a difficult question. I think that I think that success is something that evolves through life. The definition of success evolves through life. You know, early on in your life, it's it's about you know starting your career, starting a family, and how are you doing at, at that? Um, as you grow through life, how, what is the 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 experience that you're having in employment and and what is the experience that you're having in your family but what you get to be an old coot like me um you know i'm 77 dan and and i've been blessed with all kinds of wonderful experiences in my life and i've come to the conclusion that this point in life i'm trying to think about the new 3 r's um, which which I think are are relationships, relevance, and reinvention. And that's what I think about every day. I just wrote those down, the three R's. So how do you define happiness, Tom? Um, what is it that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning, the celebration of life, the celebration of those around you, uh, um, and um, and do you have something that, that because of the people that you are fortunate enough to be surrounded with um, gives you, the, and the opportunities you have gives you the drive to get out of bed in the morning. That's happiness to me. That's great. We'll be back in a few minutes talking with former FCC chairman and tech author Tom Wheeler about whether regulation and standards could be helpful to the largest technology platforms and society. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorsradio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on another podcast platform, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a positive review and tell a friend about the show. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with tech industry icon Tom Wheeler, discussing the impact of technology platforms on our daily lives. So, Tom, you've had such a diverse, successful, brilliant career. Who have been some of your key mentors? Boy, am I glad you asked that question, Dan. I, you know, um, one of the things that I have made a point of doing in every one of the 
four books that I've published is to acknowledge in my acknowledgments the mentors of my life because um you know i had a great friend by the name of mark shields um you probably all remember him from the pbs news hour when he did the commentaries every friday and mark was a wonderful friend and mentor um and mark said we have all warmed ourselves on fires that we didn't build and drunk from wells we didn't dig hmm. and i just think that's a terrific description of hmm. the importance of mentors and the guidance that mentors give us that warming us by their fire helping us drink what they have what they have dug um and um and so i always try and make sure that in my book i talk about my mentors you know you and i had the opportunity to work together in the wireless business and you know you can't think about that or at least i can't think about that without thinking of mentors like stan sigmund and john stanton who you and i were both blessed to know um and um and and so um we are you know we have been warmed at fires and we have drunk from the experiences of our mentors and i hope that we can then turn around and be mentors and your idea of mentor radio is a fabulous idea uh, for sharing that those kinds of experiences well thanks tom by the way um it's also a fabulous idea for sharing experiences you writing books and particularly bringing back the lessons of history are you thinking of writing any more books and if so what would it what could they possibly be about well it's interesting you asked that dan and so i will pause for a a, a, a self-serving promotion uh statement here um yes the the before right before tech lash was called from gutenberg to google the history of our future and the publisher has just come back to me and asked if I would replace the last chapter, which was a chapter that was looking forward to what could be happening next, uh, which included things like artificial intelligence. If I would replace that chapter with an entirely new chapter focused just on artificial intelligence. So that's literally what I am writing today. And that book will be reissued uh, next April. By the way, not to be a spoiler alert, but overall, do you see AI as more of an opportunity or a threat? I think it is. Uh, I think that this, the theme that I write about in From Gutenberg to Google is that every one of the major technological innovations brings with it both threat and opportunity and um and it is how we respond to that that determines the outcome and determines uh, our place in history as dealing with new technology and so i i talk about uh ai um as being like the old roman god janus that had two faces yep. one smiling and one frowning 
Um, and there are great opportunities and there are serious threats as well. And and how we manage that will determine our place in history. Another question that I think is relevant right now in terms of what we've been talking about, how do you feel about the tech billionaires owning major content platforms, be it Twitter, Time, or the Washington Post? Or should we care? I think that the issue of what they're owning personally is different from the activities of the companies uh, that affect consumers and the marketplace. By the way, in your book, you mentioned that, you know, as we try to bring technology around the world, you know, Facebook had a program called Free Basics, which right. was doing that. Yet India as a country said no. Why? Because what Free Basics was doing was saying, um, I will define what is the internet for you. And the internet starts and ends with Facebook. And, oh, I'll put a couple other nice things on here. But really, the whole exercise of Free Basics was the asset is your eyeballs and your information, your personal information. And so I'll go ahead and give you free access to the internet so that I can get access to your personal information and make it my corporate asset so that I can then sell access to you. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tom. You've given us so much to think about and you've renewed my interest in studying and learning from history. To our listeners, please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple, Google, and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.